Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Stand By Me. So last week, if you were with us, uh, we saw a bruised and bloodied Paul. And you remember this? He was standing on the steps, the steps that led from the temple area up to the Antonia Fortress. And he's looking down at a hostile crowd, a hostile crowd that just literally tried to beat him to death. And so here's what blows my mind, that even though this crowd hated Paul, Paul, amazingly, with the help of God, loved them. And he wanted them to get to know the Jesus that he knew. He wanted them to come to faith in the true Jewish Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as he spoke to the people on that day, you remember this from last week, he shared his testimony which is, by the way, one of the most powerful apologetics or defenses of the faith that we have. Okay, so what did Paul's testimony look like? By way of review, um, there on your screen, you see it, Paul's testimony. Well, his life before Christ, he was a sinner. And then how did he meet Christ? It was an encounter of grace. And then his life after Christ was marked by obedience to God's will. If you're truly a born-again Christian, then your testimony looks similar to that. Listen, none of us, as some would teach, are born innocent, and then we try really hard to do good works to earn our way to heaven. That's not a testimony at all. That won't float, not here on earth and not up in heaven especially. A true testimony begins with us admitting that we're sinners in need of a savior, and then it goes to an encounter of God's grace, and then, of course, as the blood of Jesus cleanses us of our sins and the Holy Spirit comes inside, then we have power to live out the Christian life. And so that was Paul's testimony. And wow, what an obedient Christian Paul was. In fact, Jesus told Paul by way of review, look at chapter 22, verse 21. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul in a vision and he said, go At the end of verse 21, in uh, chapter 21, he said, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, okay? And so as soon as Paul, again, on the steps, addressing this hostile crowd, as soon as he said the word Gentiles, that Jewish crowd came unglued. You know, if he would have traveled around the, the, the Roman Empire to foreign lands, and if he would have gone to the Gentiles and made them proselytes of Judaism, this Jewish crowd would have loved him. But Paul didn't do that. Paul went all around the Roman Empire to foreign lands, and he made the Gentiles followers of Jesus, who Paul claimed was the Messiah. All right, so how did those people down below respond? Again, by way of review, look at verse 22 of chapter 22. It says that up to this word, the word Gentiles, they listened to him, but then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune This is the head honcho in Jerusalem, the guy who's large and in charge, the the big wig in Jerusalem, the, the, the Roman, the top Roman authority, the tribune, ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging or whipping to find out why they were shouting against him like this. 
And so right in the middle of this uproar, you have this Roman tribune. We're going to find out his name is Claudius Lysias. And he didn't understand what was going on. He wanted to get to the bottom of this. All he knew that a riot occurred in the temple on his watch. And he wanted to find out why. And so he ordered Paul to be flogged until, you know, this quote-unquote troublemaker would confess to why he made this crowd so angry. And so Claudius, the tribune, looked at his centurion. He said, flog him. And so they, they stretched Paul out. They took off his robe, bare back. They're ready to bring down that, that first lash across his bare back. And Paul looks up at the centurion or, or one of the Roman soldiers, and he says, is it lawful for you to flog an uncondemned Roman citizen? And at that point, everybody backed away. They were afraid. If it was illegal to bind a Roman citizen, it was certainly illegal to whip a Roman citizen. And so Claudius, the, the tribune, he's in a pickle. He knows that if he has Paul whipped as a Roman citizen, he's going to lose his position. But he also knew that his superiors were going to hear about this riot in the temple, and they're going to want answers. And so what is he going to do? And as we saw last week, he gets on the phone. He calls the high priest Ananias. He says, Ananias, we got a problem. And he orders the Sanhedrin to gather together for a hearing on the next day with Paul. And so I want you to picture the scene as we set it up. Claudius is there. A detachment of soldiers is there. And the apostle Paul is there. They all leave the Antonia fortress. They go down to a common area in the Jewish temple. And there is the mighty Sanhedrin. And so on one side, you got the, the, the 71 most powerful men along with Ananias the high priest. They're all there, they're angry, they're mad. And on the other side, you got one man, the Apostle Paul. And then somewhere above, you got Claudius and some Roman soldiers. And so one against 71. The odds don't look too good for Paul, but how many of you know that when God is on our side, the odds are always with us and not against us. And so we're gonna pick it up now in verse one, Acts 23, verse one. It says that, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. And so before Paul could get two sentences out of his mouth, he got punched in the mouth. I mean, I have lived my life, Paul says, in all good conscience, bam. And so that hurts, right? Maybe Paul spat out a bloody tooth, I don't know. But the, the man who ordered him to be punched was Ananias. Ananias, the current high priest, was appointed as high priest in AD 47. He was one of the most corrupt high priests that ever held office, and he wouldn't think twice about using violence in order to intimidate the people that he ruled over. And so Ananias, the high priest, was offended that Paul, as a Jew, would have the audacity to say, I have lived up to this point with a good conscience, even though in Ananias' mind, good conscience, you're a ringleader of those Christians. Strike him. And all of a sudden, bam, Paul gets punched in the mouth. Now, the, we, the reason we know this is not a slap, but a punch, 
is because the same word in verse 2 that's um, interpreted or, or translated strike is the same word back in chapter 21 when the crowd was beating Paul. Okay, on the court of the Gentiles, when there was mass hysteria and a riot, and they're beating Paul, they weren't slapping him, saying, Paul, you shouldn't be doing this. No, they were beating him. Same word now in verse 2. And so Paul gets socked in the mouth. Let's see how he responds. Look at verse 3. It says, Then Paul said to him, to Ananias, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? I mean, Paul really gave it to the high priest. Now, the term whitewashed is the same term as you see on your screen that Jesus used for the religious leaders of his day. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like, here it is, whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, uncleanliness. And so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so in that day, in that Jewish culture, what they did to old, older tombs is they whitewashed them. They, they plastered them so that the Jews could see them and so the Jews would not inadvertently touch them and become ceremonially unclean, um, as it says in the law of Moses. And so Jesus says to these religious leaders, hey, on the outside, you look so beautiful. You're like a whitewashed tomb, but on the inside, you're dead. On the inside, you're spiritually dead. You guys appear so righteous on the outside, but inside, you're filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus wasn't pulling any punches, and Paul didn't either. And so Ananias, back to our text, the high priest, he appeared all righteous, right? But on the inside, God knew. God knew his heart. By the way, God knows all of our hearts. He knows when we're faking it. He knows who's really genuine, who's really sincere. And so God knew Ananias is a fake. And so Paul here calls him out. He goes a little too far. I'll, I'll prove that point here in a moment. But what Paul tells the high priest is that your order to have me punched goes against the law of Moses. And so what's going on here is the law of Moses taught that it wasn't until after a verdict is rendered, after a guilty verdict is rendered, then somebody uh, could be punished. But Paul, Paul's not even been condemned yet. He's not been uh, told that he's guilty yet, yet they still punched him. And so Paul looks at the high priest and he says, God's gonna strike you. <clears throat> and that, by the way, was a prophetic statement. Right now, <clears throat> we're right around AD 57, Within 10 years from this whole scene where we are in the Bible, what's going to happen is that Ananias, the high priest, is going to be killed by his own people. You see, in AD 66, about 10 years from where we are in the Bible right now, there's going to be something called the Great Jewish Revolt. And the Jews are going to rebel against the Roman Empire. And patriotic Jews, what happened at that point in AD 66, is they went after other Jews, Jews who were sympathetic with Rome. 
And because of Ananias's pro-Roman connections, he was hunted down. The guy was hiding in an aqueduct in Herod's palace. He was hunted down by Jewish guerrillas, freedom fighters, and they violently killed the high priest. Hey, have you ever heard what comes, uh, what comes around or goes around? Well, it's true. We always reap what we sow. How many of you are thankful for grace, right? And so now look at verse four. It says that those who stood by Paul said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, look at this, I did not know. So Paul's eating some humble pie here. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written. By the way, Paul knew his Bible. The reason Paul knew his Bible is because he read the Bible, he studied the Bible, and he made the Bible an important part of his life. And so he didn't grab a scroll of Exodus. He just quotes it because he knows it. It's in his heart. And so he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so why didn't Paul, Paul says, hey, I didn't know, I didn't know you were the high priest. Why didn't Paul know? Well, some people say it's because he's been gone from Jerusalem for so long. He doesn't know who the current high priest is. Others say it's because of his poor eyesight. And so based on certain verses in Galatians, uh, we come to the conclusion, and I believe it's accurate personally, that Paul had a serious eye condition which made his sight blurry. And so he's looking, and all he can see is like a blurry, maybe a white robe. And so he's like, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, not even knowing this is the high priest. But Paul knew he was wrong. And so he admitted it by quoting Exodus 22, verse 28. Again, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Let me just stop right there. This is not in the notes, but I think this uh, may be prophetic as well. And that is, Christian, we should not speak evil of the ruler of the people. And so whether you're a Democrat or whether you're a Republican or whether you're independent, all of us, we need to, again, I'll, I'll speak a little slower, not speak evil of the ruler of our people. You think Ananias was evil? Yeah, and yet Paul knew he was wrong. Paul admitted it. Christians, we have no business speaking evil of the ruler of the people. And once again, here's here's what we gotta do. We have to respect the office, even though we might not have the most respect for the person in office. That That was free. All right, now look at verse six. It says, now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sanhedrin here, one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. Are you following here in verse 8? The Sadducees, part of the Sanhedrin here, these are the wealthy um, um, aristocrats. These are the ones who control the temple. These are the ones who sympathized with Rome and had all the connections. The Sadducees, verse 8, say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees, the ones who controlled the synagogues, the ones who appealed to the common man, the ones who believed what the Bible said, 
they acknowledged them all. And so just like in politics and religion, you have your conservatives and you have your liberals. And first century Judaism was no exception. And so you have the Sanhedrin, the 71 most powerful men in Israel, and they're divided between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, the Pharisees were the conservatives and the Sadducees were the liberals. The Pharisees believed what the Bible said about the existence of angels. They're like, yeah, of course. The Bible says there's angels. There's angels. We don't believe it, but their attitude is God said it. We believe it, right? The Sadducees are, are you kidding me? There aren't any angels. They're just a figment of your imagination. By the way, some of you watching think in those terms and you need to repent and begin to believe what the Bible says, even though you can't see it. The Pharisees believed in life after death. They believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not. They said, when you're dead, you're dead. Lights out, you're done. Now, Paul knew these guys were divided in this way, and so he used it to his advantage. With one statement, he divided the Sanhedrin by their party lines. Look again at the end of verse six. He says, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. It's respect to the resurrection. That's why I'm on trial. And that caused everybody to go at it. The conservatives, the liberals, they're fighting right now. And we're gonna pick it up in verse nine. Look at verse nine. Then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes and Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. Okay, so these are the Pharisees, the Bible believers. And they said, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And verse 10 says, and when a dissension became violent, the tribune, remember him, Claudius, was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And he commanded the soldiers to go down. So somehow Claudius and the soldiers were above watching all this. Go down and take Paul away from them by force and bring him back to the Antonia Fortress or back to the barracks, okay? So we're not sure exactly how this whole fight went down, but um, probably something like this. Paul says, it's because of the resurrection I'm on trial and the Sadducees don't believe that. They're angry and so they're like grabbing Paul, trying to pull him one way to hurt him. But then now you got his new friends, the Pharisees, and they're stepping in to protect Paul. They're grabbing him to help him, pulling him another way. And Paul's being pulled back and forth, back and forth to where the Roman tribune looks down. He's like, this guy's gonna get torn apart. And he says, soldiers, get down in there. And the soldiers went down into the fray and they violently rescued Paul once again. Now, Paul, the next night, feels absolutely terrible. Have you ever been there? I mean, can we just be honest? Yes, we're Christians. Yes, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Yes, we have the word of God. Yes, we stand on the word of God. But sometimes life's hard. Even for guys like the apostle Paul. And Paul's feeling terrible right now. And that night, he can't sleep. Physically, He's aching because of the beatings that he took from both the crowd beating on him and the sock he got in the mouth. And then emotionally, he's down as well. 
Concerning this time in Paul's life, David Guzik said this, it's on your screen. He said, it, it was in the darkness of that night when the fears came to Paul. Are you listening to this? Because this is where we start becoming real. No fake, no pharisaical, whitewashed tomb, so to speak. This is where we become honest with God. It says, it was in the darkness of that night when the fears came to Paul. When his trust in God seemed to falter. You say the apostle Paul? Yeah, he was a human being like you and I. And when he worried about what God was going to do and if he was going to make it. So can you relate to that? I know I can. And so perhaps it was at this time in, in Paul's story here that he started to question himself. By the way, the book of James says that the double-minded man or woman is unstable in all their ways. You see, it's, it's in those times when we begin to question ourselves, which by the way, a lot of times is aided by the demonic realm. It's at times we start to question ourselves that fear begins to swallow us up. And so maybe right now, we know Paul can't sleep. It's in the middle of the night. And so maybe right now he's questioning himself. Maybe, I'm just saying maybe, he's having thoughts like, you know, those prophets in town after town on the way to Jerusalem, they just kept saying, don't go there. It's gonna be really hard. Maybe I should have listened to them. And then James and the elders, they wanted me to sponsor those four guys in their Nazarite vow and go into the temple. Maybe I shouldn't have listened to James. And then when I stood before the Sanhedrin, maybe I shouldn't have called the high priest a whitewashed wall. You know, instead of dividing the Sanhedrin, they're already divided enough. I just aided in division. Can that be good? Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should have just stuck with Jesus. Maybe I should have just preached the gospel to them and let the chips fall. Maybe I've blown this whole thing and now I'm stuck in this Roman fortress and I don't have any clue about what's gonna happen to me in the future. How many of you guys know that when we're down, the enemy comes in even stronger. When we're down, he increases his attacks. Concerning, again, this time in Paul's life, G. Campbell Morgan said this, bold, courageous, fearless during the day, right? None of us during the day have a problem with being bold and fearless and courageous, right? So bold, courageous, fearless during the day, the night, <laughs> The night of loneliness finds the strength spent and the enemy is never slow to take advantage of that fact. My question is, have you ever been there? Be honest with yourself. God responds to honesty. God responds to authenticity. God responds to a true heart. And so have you ever been there? As long as we're residents of a fallen world, you need to know, Christian, that spiritual reality is absolutely gonna be a reality in our lives. And so when we're tired, listen to this, when we're tired, when we're lonely, when we're emotionally down, that's when the enemy comes and he begins to whisper condemnation into our minds. 
I want you to picture somebody who's like in quicksand and they're there in quicksand and they know it doesn't look very good. You know what the enemy does? In times when someone's vulnerable, the enemy comes, he stands on the dry ground and there this person is in quicksand and, and this person's doubting regretting some past decision they don't have any control over anymore and the enemy's got his finger on this person's forehead and it's just slowly pushing. What's wrong with you? You did what? Why do you even try being a Christian? Why don't you just give it up? Why does the enemy lie to us? Well, you know that when Satan's lips are moving, he's lying, right? Jesus called him the father of all lies. The reason that he lies to us is to plunge us deeper into discouragement, hoping that eventually we'll sink. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. If right now, you know, you're wallowing in some regret from the past, reliving it in your mind over and over and over again, be careful, you're gonna sink. Now, here's what's, Good news from the scriptures today. Paul felt like that. Paul was emotionally sinking. And all of a sudden, Jesus came. Look at verse 11. It says now in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, the following night, the Lord, look at this, stood by him. And he said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so when Paul couldn't sleep, when the enemy was whispering lies in the night, you need to know that, Paul, that, that the Lord stood by Paul. When Paul was struggling and regret, when Paul was thinking that he'd blown it and he was a total failure, the Lord came. Look, listen, this is the rescue for the Christian, not self-help books. The rescue for the Christian is Jesus Christ revealing himself to that Christian and standing by that Christian. This is what I love about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he came to Paul, not with condemnation, but he came to Paul with encouragement. And what did he say? He said, take courage. Okay, so why did he say take courage? Because Paul was lacking in courage like you and I lacking courage. Why did Jesus say take courage? It's because Paul needed a word of encouragement. The Lord did not come to Paul and say, why did you go to Jerusalem anyway? Why did you go into the temple anyway? Why did you call the high priest a whitewashed wall anyway? Why did you divide the Sanhedrin even more anyway? Paul, your ministry's over. I'm done with you. You see, some of you think that's the voice of Jesus. It's not the voice of Jesus. You've heard me say before, there's two voices in your life. One of condemnation and one of encouragement. The voice of condemnation comes from the enemy. Paul wrote, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The voice of encouragement, you just saw it in verse 11, comes from the Lord. And so one voice wants to push you down. Just give it up. You're a loser into this quicksand of despair. But the other one stands and grabs. And someday I can't wait to see the biceps of Jesus. They're gonna be so awesome. And he's just gonna lift 
Paul up. He's going to lift you up if you'll let him. And so Jesus comes to Paul. He says in verse 11, take courage as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So you must testify also in Rome. And so how many of you guys know that one word from Jesus can make a multitude of demons flee, right? And so there's Paul in the, stuck in the Antonia fortress. And there he is in the middle of the night, self-doubt, questioning himself, double-minded, demons, I believe personally, whispering condemnation into his head. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, this ain't happening. And he appears to Paul, take courage. And all these demons are like, yeah, they just flee. That's the power of our Savior. Listen, a self-help book doesn't have that power. The Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> has that power. And the Lord loves you. And he wants to do the same thing for you as a virus is spreading across our globe. Don't panic. Don't fear. Don't freak out. Go to the Lord. He's got the power. He's got all the answers. Christian, never forget this. In difficult times of life, Jesus, he, he really does desire this. He desires to stand by you and lift you up. I mean, didn't Jesus say, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's greater than all, who has given them to me, no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Didn't Jesus say that? Didn't Jesus say, I will never leave you nor forsake you? He didn't say, I'll never leave you unless you do that. Then you're on your own, buddy. He didn't say that. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And didn't Paul write, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, talking about demons, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, where do you find encouragement like that? In this book. But you gotta open it up. You gotta study it, not just on the weekend, but every day in your own life. Get that encouragement that you need. And so if you have trusted in Jesus Christ to save you, he has. If you have turned from your sins and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, trusting that what he did on the cross was for you and that he is risen, you're saved, period. Why? Because it's a promise of God. And the reason he's able to save you to the uttermost is because he took your condemnation for you. Don't tune me out. This is exactly what you need because this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right here, right now, this could change your life. You need to know that Jesus took your condemnation because of his love for you, the condemnation that you and I deserved. And by his crucifixion, he paid for your sins. And by his resurrection, he stripped the devil of any power that the devil may have over you. And so if you've trusted Christ as your Savior and your Lord, the judge of heaven and earth, he has slammed down his gavel and he has pronounced forgiven 
and that verdict of love can never be changed. Didn't Paul write to the Romans and say in Romans 8:33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, your sin, my sin, can never change our status, Christian, as a child of God, but it can hinder our fellowship with the Lord. But the Lord's made provision for that as well. He gave us 1 John 1, 9. Most of you know it by heart, but it's always good to remind us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, cancel the debt. He doesn't say you gotta work to earn it. He doesn't say you have to say all these prayers to get back. He says, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, two voices, one of condemnation, one of encouragement. The choice is yours as to which one you're gonna listen to. Paul, take courage, Jesus said. Take courage as you have testified of the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify in Rome as well. And so right now, Paul, lying awake in the Antonia Fortress, everything changes for him. Before, he's physically aching. He's emotionally feeling down. Now he gets a word from the Lord. And man, he's got renewed passion. He's got a renewed mission. Rome. You know, I've always wanted to go to Rome. I cannot wait to go to Rome. I heard the coronavirus is really bad in Italy. I may have to wait a month, but I'm going to go to Rome, right? And so even though Paul knew he's on his way to Rome, the enemy still tries to take him out. By the way, the enemy is gonna keep trying to do this in your life and in my life until the day we take our last breath or the Lord snatches us up into heaven. But look at verse 12 now. It says that when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And so Paul's in the Antonia Fortress there in Jerusalem. Many of the Jews hate him. And so they make a decision. They make an oath. We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink until we've killed the guy. I think that's stupid. I love food way too much to ever make an oath like that. But in verse 13, it says there was more than 40 who made this conspiracy. This is crazy. And by the way, these are religious guys. And so you can be religious and lost, as I've said a thousand times before. Verse 14, and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes Near. And so Satan tries to take Paul out here, but guess what? Jesus said, you're going to Rome. And if Jesus says, you're going to Rome, you're going to Rome. And now we see God's sovereign protection over Paul. Look at verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Hmm, what a coincidence. Paul's nephew overhears some discussion. Overhears the ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, 
verse 17. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. Who knows how old this kid is? I don't know, 12? It's just a guess. Verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for my uncle, right? Who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, hey, kid, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And so again, what a coincidence Paul's nephew happens to overhear the plot. It's not a coincidence, ladies and gentlemen. It's a godowance. Look at verse 23. And then he, Claudius, the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, get ready, this is crazy, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, 9 p.m. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And so why in the world would Claudius the Tribune respond in such a strong way? I mean, you would think Paul was Caesar or something. Well, it's because Paul was a Roman citizen, an uncondemned Roman citizen, and there was no way that an uncondemned Roman citizen was ever gonna be taken out on this guy's watch. He's a good soldier. And so what does he do? He orders 470 men, nearly half, half of the soldiers stationed at the Antonia Fortress, 200 infantrymen, 200 spearmen, 70 cavalry to escort Paul over to Caesarea to Herod's palace. And Claudius also writes a letter to send to Felix. And we see that now in verse 25. It says that he wrote a letter to this effect. Okay, this is a letter from the tribune to the governor. And I have to laugh at how this guy makes himself look so good to the governor. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them and the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Uh, no, Claudius, actually, you had no idea he was a Roman citizen until you were about to flog him. But of course, he leaves that little detail out of the letter because human nature is that we want to make ourselves look good. Verse 28, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. He finishes the letter, gives it to the centurion, take this to Governor Felix. And so they're off. Look at verse 31. So the, sol the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night 
to Antipatrice. Verse 32, and on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. Okay, and so here you see a map on your screen. The soldiers and Paul, they leave Jerusalem at 9 p.m., so 470 Roman, hardened Roman soldiers with Paul, escorting him to Antipatrice. And they get all the way uh, to that city. They march all night to get to that city. And it's 40 miles. So they're, they're marching pretty hard. They get to that city, Antipatrice, and it was the distance between Jerusalem and that city that Claudius was most concerned that there would be a possible ambush. That did not occur. And so what happened is because it was all clear, the soldiers turned around, went back to Jerusalem, but the cavalry rode with Paul the rest of the way, about 25 or so miles from Antipatrice up to Caesarea. And let's finish this up. Look at verse 33. It says, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. I'll tell you more about Felix next week. Verse 34. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded Paul to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And so Paul is placed under guard at the praetorium. The praetorium meant the governor's residence, which happened to be a big, beautiful palace that Herod the Great built right on the Mediterranean. And so if you go with us to Israel in about a year from now, we'll take you there and show you the remains of this palace and so right now, it's just a bunch of rocks on the beautiful Mediterranean Sea. But right there, that is exactly where Herod the Great built his palace. And that is where later in history, Felix the governor made his home. And so Paul's in that palace somewhere under guard. If you go with us to Israel, we'll also take you down the street to an amphitheater, which is just to the south of the remains of Herod's palace. Amazing structure. And then we'll also show you some other beautiful scenery there in beautiful Caesarea. And so in closing, maybe you're watching there in the comfort of your living room. And maybe right now you're thinking about some stuff that you've done in the past that you're not proud of. And you're feeling bad about it. You're feeling low about it. Let me encourage you with these words from St. Augustine. Check this out. Trust the past to the mercy of God and the present to his love and the future to his providence. And so, ladies and gentlemen, those of you who belong to Calvary PSL, those of you who are watching, not necessarily belonging to this local church. This is what we call the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. You think about the world, especially right now. What does our world need? I said earlier, they need the peace that only the Prince of Peace can give. What the world needs now more than anything is the gospel 
The word gospel means the evangel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so here's what the gospel entails. It starts with good news, then it goes to bad news, and then it goes to really good news. The good news that it starts with is that you were created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. That when God knit you together in your mother's womb, he declares that you're in my image. That's how much God loves you. The problem is, Psalm 51.5, David writes, in sin, my mother conceived me. So not from God, but from our parents, we received a sin nature, handed down from Adam and Eve all the way down to you and me. From Adam, his guilt imputed to us. From our parents, we received this sin nature. And so the, the image of God, not totally wiped away, as some would say, but the image of God in us, it's been lessened to a great degree because of our sin. Not only are we born in sin, now moving into the bad news, not only are we born in sin, we choose to sin. And the Bible says that the wages or the penalty of sin is death. The word death does not mean to cease to exist. That's nowhere in the Bible. The word death means separation. And so we're, we're two-part beings. We're body, soul, material, immaterial. When we take our last breath, our body goes in the ground. But that immaterial soul in you and I, that's eternal. And if we die in our sins, we have to be separated from our creator, separated from the living God in a place called hell. And so that bad news, it's, it's bad, but it's universally applicable. It's all of us. Here's the good news. God so loved the world. So God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Jesus is the answer. As I keep saying over and over and over again, I'll keep saying it till I have my last breath. Jesus is real. Jesus is the answer. He loved you so much, he came from heaven to earth. Remember he said, I and the Father are one? And so Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, left heaven, entered this world through the womb of a virgin, grew up, lived a perfect life, and willingly went to a cross for you and me. And on that cross, they didn't force his hands down. He willingly laid his hands down. And they lifted him up. And on that cross, he absorbed the wrath of God against sin. Your sin, my sin. He took our condemnation on himself. He paid our, for our sins in full. And then at the end, he yelled, to tell us die, it is finished, which can also be translated, paid in full. Remember I said, the judge slams down his mallet, his gavel. He says, forgiven for those who turn to Christ. It's not because we're so good, it's because Jesus is so good. It's because of what Jesus did for us. And three days later, he rose again from the dead, proving that everything he ever said and everything he ever did was from God, God the Father. He's the answer. But he says, come to me, 
You see, it's our choice. We do have a choice in the matter. God doesn't just zap us. We need to turn from our sins and turn to Christ. I didn't say reform your life. I didn't say try harder. What I'm saying is turn to Jesus. Repentance means a change of mind. Completely change your mind about Jesus Christ and receive his free gift of salvation. It may be something like this, and if you want to bow your head and close your eyes in your own living room right now and accept Jesus Christ, you can, you can say this prayer to him, but it's got to come from you to him. Just bow your head right now and say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I've blown it. I know I'm a sinner. And I know the penalty of sin is death. But I believe you came and I believe you died for me, paying for my sins. I believe you rose again, and I'm responding to you. You're my only hope. Come and forgive my sins. Come into my heart, be my savior, be the Lord of my life. I trust you, in Jesus' name, amen. And so if you just accepted Christ as your savior, I wanna encourage you to do, to do this. I want you to go to our website, calvarypsl.com. And then click on the top, um, I'm new here. There'll be a drop down field and click on the words knowing Christ. That'll take you to a page that basically just shares what I just shared, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. At the bottom of that page, there's a big button that says, I accepted Christ. So if you did, if you just invited Christ into your life or if you decide to later today, I wanna ask you to click that button, fill out that little form, and then we would love to be able to come around you and encourage you. We're not gonna call you every day, but we wanna encourage you. We wanna send you a free New Testament and just uh, encourage you in your faith. And so church family, visitors, it's been an honor to be able to under these circumstances to still have a live worship gathering, to still gather together as a church family in our homes. I wanna encourage you to be faithful to your Calvary groups, but make sure you follow those CDC um, uh, instructions for safety. And uh, we'll keep you updated through our website, through emails, um, through Facebook, uh, social media on what's happening here in the, in the future, the near future. So we love you guys and we're gonna close in prayer. So Father, thank you for this opportunity to continue to worship you and continue to teach your word. Even Lord, Lord, we're not supposed to be physically gathering right now. We gather spiritually, Lord. We're so grateful that the church is the universal church. Every man, woman, teenager, boy and girl across the globe who's trusted Christ, we're all spiritually one. Thank you that we can still worship you in times like these. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys, we'll see you next week.